The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, reading from verse 10 to verse 13. From verse 10 to verse 13 in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Roman, to the Ephesians. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We come back once more to discuss and to consider together this uh, most important and vital statement which the Apostle makes here at the end of this great epistle to the Ephesians. We are doing so for a number of reasons. There are those perhaps who hearing a text like this and hearing the reading at the beginning from the book of the prophet Ezekiel and the book of the prophet Isaiah may wonder what all this is about and what relevance it can possibly have to the individual Christian life or to the life of the community as a whole. Well, we have been at pains to point out that there is nothing, perhaps, which is quite so relevant to our individual and corporate conditions this morning as this very passage which we are looking at together. For, after all, the most important thing we can ever discover is the nature of this life and in, of this world in which we find ourselves. The Apostle's first uh, intent in writing this, of course, was to help these Ephesians, and through them all subsequent Christians who should ever read these words, in the living of the Christian life. The Apostle's theme, if you like, in a sense, is that of sanctification and of holiness. And you notice the way in which he deals with that, how different it is from our method. I wonder when you last heard in a convention on holiness or sanctification a series of addresses on the devil and on demons. No, you probably haven't heard it, because we've all become so subjective. We start with ourselves, we end with ourselves. We want a little message that will make us feel nice and comfortable, offer us victory, and deliver us. That isn't how the New Testament deals with sanctification. It shows us the nature of the conflict. It instructs us. It teaches us. And according to the apostle here, a man who doesn't realize that he has to fight not flesh and blood, not men, but these principalities and powers, the wiles of the devil, and so on. He is the merest tyro and is certainly doomed to defeat. So there is nothing more practical than this from the standpoint of living the Christian life. The apostle in writing to the Corinthians says, you remember in his second epistle, second chapter, verse 11, we are not ignorant of his devices. He says, I know something about the wiles of the devil, what he tries to do in a church and amongst Christian people. We are not ignorant of his devices. 
And it's because he wasn't ignorant of the devices of the devil that he was able to instruct and to teach and to help Christian people. And that is what he's doing here at this point also. But as I've been reminding you, there is a, a sense in which one really doesn't understand the whole purpose of salvation unless one understands this. Why did the Son of God come into this world? Well, to put it broadly, we can put it like this with the Apostle John. He came that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's what the Apostle, the inspired Apostle says. That the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and did all he did. That he might destroy, disannul, undo the works of the devil. So if we don't know what the works of the devil are, how can we possibly understand the purpose of God in sending his son into this world? So you see, this is something which is quite basic and fundamental. But as I've been saying, it's essential to an understanding of the state of the world as it is this morning. We hope to deal with this at greater length on another occasion. But unless you and I are all are awake to the fact that there are demonic forces and powers obviously at work in the world today, well, then we must be very blind indeed. So this is essential to an understanding of the whole condition of the human race at this moment and the course of history. And if you want another practical reason for considering it all, you may have noticed a kind of recrudescence in an interest in spiritism and psychic phenomena. You always get that after wars. You always get it at a time of trouble and of difficulty and of crisis. It's becoming popular. It's creeping into the life of the Christian church, alas. And uh, so it's important that we should understand the teaching that we're given here in order that we may recognize spiritism for what it really is the work of demons. I hope also to touch on that at, on a later occasion. But now, here are therefore some good general reasons why we should consider this. I'm taking this time in introducing my subject this morning because I'm well aware of the fact that this kind of teaching is strange today, not only to the world but even to the church. It's unusual. It's been forgotten. That is the supreme tragedy, of course, and this is the height of the devil's subtlety and ability that he has so successfully concealed himself or transported himself into an angel of light that so many people no longer believe in the devil at all and are not aware of his existence and indeed regard any consideration of the devil as more or less of a joke and thereby, of course, put themselves into a very serious condition. Listen to what the Apostle Peter has to say about such people in the second epistle and in his second chapter, beginning at verse 10. He's talking about certain people who have gone astray. He says, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. That's it. Speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. 
The angels don't speak uh, disparagingly and jocularly about the devil and demons. No, they, though they're much greater than we are, he says, greater in power and might, they bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall perish utterly in their own corruption. Then let's reinforce that with a word from the epistle of Jude to show you the seriousness of this matter and how there is nothing more monstrous than that people should joke about the devil and regard that as the height of jocularity when you're talking about the devil and about evil spirits. Look at it in the epistle of Jude in the eighth verse and so on. He says, likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Very well then, we are reminded that we are dealing here with not only a vitally important subject, but one which we must handle carefully and with great reverence. And what we have discovered is this, that there are great powers of evil at work in this world. We looked at them uh, according to the apostles' description of them last Sunday morning. The devil, principalities, powers, the world rulers of this darkness, spirits of evil and of wickedness in high or in heavenly places. Now then, here then is the position as the apostle paints it to us and as we find it taught elsewhere in the Bible. That while we are living in this world, passing through this world, we are not confronted merely by the problem of meeting men and human ability and difficulties which arise from men and women, human nature as such. But at the back of all this, there are these unseen, mighty spiritual powers and forces. Very well. Now the next question that surely must arise for our consideration is this. Where have these forces come from? How have they ever come into being at all? Or if you like it in another form, if we say that these unseen spiritual forces are evil, what is the origin of evil? Where does evil come from? Now there is a great question, isn't it? And a very important question. It's a very important question from the standpoint of our belief in God. There are many people today who are atheists. They don't believe in God. And it's very largely because of this very question. They're troubled by this problem of evil and the origin of evil. So it's very important that as Christian people we should have some understanding of this, not only for our own peace of mind, but in order that we may be able to help others. Or let me put it the other way around. It has often happened 
that when people have come to understand the true nature of evil, they have come to a belief in God. Now, there was a man, a philosopher, who was well-known and popular a few years ago. He referred to the late Dr. Jode. I'm not expressing any opinion as to what I think of his opinions, but I do say this, that he said in a book, that whereas once he was an atheist, but had now come to believe in God, he said that the thing that had brought him to that belief was the realization as the result of the Spanish Civil War and then the Second World War that there were obviously spiritual forces of evil. He couldn't explain these events merely in human terms. He came to believe in the whole category in the realm of the spiritual. And ultimately, that brought him to believe in the being of God. So you see, it is very important that we should understand this. Our faith is not complete if we don't understand this. Our belief in God is involved, I say, in the understanding of this particular subject. And therefore we are bound to meet it and to face it. And in addition, as I say, you'll never understand the whole course of the history of the world if you don't understand this teaching. You won't understand the past. You won't understand the present. And still less will you have any real hope with regard to the future. Very well. Let's see what the Bible tells us about this. What is the origin of the devil, the principalities and powers, the spirits of wickedness in the heavenly places, the rulers, the world rulers of the darkness of this world? Well, now, before we look at the biblical answer to the question, let me remind you that this is, this is a problem that has engaged the minds and the thoughts of men throughout the running centuries. There was a, a view held for a very long time in the ancient world that evil came from a god who was virtually equal to the Lord God Almighty in power and in strength. They said there was a good God, there was a, an evil God. They called this the Demiurge. And they verily believed that that was the explanation. And that these two gods were equal in their eternity and in their powers. Many of them believed that it was this evil God that had created this world altogether. Others believed it was the good God who had created the world, but that the other had interfered with it and so on. Now, there was an ancient view which held sway for uh, many a century. Others believed, and many still believe this, they believe in the eternity of evil. They say evil is something that is in the very warp and woof of the whole creation. And it's not something that has come into being. It was always there. Evil is an eternal quality in and of itself. It's always been, well, because it is something that is inherent in the constitution of things. They don't attempt to explain its origin. They just postulate that uh, evil is something that always has been absolutely eternal in and of itself. And then coming to the third view, which I just want to mention in passing, the uh, prevailing view today is this. 
that there is no such thing as evil at all. That what this is being called evil is really just the absence of good or the absence of perfection. This is the view, of course, that arises out of the whole theory, supposition of evolution. You see, the view is that uh, everything is developing and growing and advancing. Well, obviously, they say, we haven't arrived at absolute perfection yet, and until you arrive at perfection, there will be certain defects, there will be certain blemishes, there will be an element of incompleteness. And that is, they say, what has always been called evil. But it's wrong. It isn't positive. It's only negative. It's just that things are not what they ought to be. They haven't arrived at this ultimate perfection. It's a lack of qualities rather than a positive entity in and of itself. A mere negative condition rather than a positive one. Now, of course, you can see at a glance how vitally important it is whether that view is true or whether it isn't true. If this view is true, well then, all we need is a little patience. Of course, we may need to wait a few million years before this great process will advance and evolve until we've arrived at perfection. But in any case, it's going to happen. So we must put up with things as they are and exhort one another to make the best of it while we are here and consider ourselves unfortunate that we are living now and not in a number of millennia that are to come. But it will, of course, immediately affect one's whole view of man and his ultimate destiny of life and what can be done with the world at this present time. Well, now, there are some of the views outside the Bible. But come, let us turn to the biblical view and be positive. I'm not wasting your time in dealing with those other theories. They're hardly worthy of it. And we will see that, of course, as we look at the biblical teaching. Here is the biblical teaching. The Bible starts with God. In the beginning, God. God over all. God from everlasting to everlasting. God self-subsistent and existent within himself. But God in his own inscrutable wisdom is determining to create And first and foremost, uh, creating the hosts of heaven. God created the hosts of heaven uh, for his own purpose, for his own ends, in order that they might serve certain purposes and functions, and that they might carry out his behests. Author of the epistle to the Hebrews says, are they not all ministering spirits? He's referring to the angels. In other words, the Bible teaches that God created first and foremost, the heavens and these denizens or citizens of the heavenly regions, which seem to be divided into angels and principalities and powers. Now these were all made and created by God, and they were all, of course, perfect and complete and entire. There is the starting point. Now, we are not talking about the earth. We are not talking about the world at the moment. We are talking about these heavenly realms and regions and God creating these spiritual entities, angels, principalities, powers. We are not given many details about them, but if you look at the book of Revelation, you will read there, of course, it's all in symbols about certain beasts and elders and so on. Well, there are gradations. There are divisions of office. 
which we don't understand perfectly, but we can sum it up like that. Angels, principalities, powers, all perfect, all glorious, and all under God and ministering for God and to God. Very well, what happened? What is the next step? Well, now here we come to the very essence of the biblical teaching about this matter. We start with the person and personality of the devil again. Now, it's perfectly clear that the devil was originally one of these bright, angelic creatures made by God. If you want proof of that, uh, I've already given you two in those portions we read at the beginning, but take the book of Job in the first chapter and the sixth verse. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, the sons of God in the Old Testament generally stands for the angels. And here we are told that a day came when the angels presented themselves before God, and amongst, amongst these sons of God was Satan, the devil. Satan also came among them. And in the same way, if you read again at your leisure those passages out of Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, you will be driven and compelled to come to the same conclusion. Lucifer, son of the morning. The description there, though primarily perhaps meant to apply to Babylon and to the Chaldean power, is generally agreed to extend well beyond that. That is the custom, of course, in prophecy. You start with the immediate, but you use that for a further light, in the same way as you find it on the other side. You will read many prophecies which appear to refer to King David alone, but obviously they go beyond David and they point to the Messiah. There are promises made to the children of Israel which primarily refer clearly to their coming back from the captivity of Babylon. But they're too big for that. They're pictures of the Christian salvation, the salvation of the soul. And that is why they're quoted in the New Testament to show the fulfillment of the prophecy. Well, now, it's exactly the same on this negative side. In describing the fall of Tyrus or the fall of Babylon, the prophets were inspired to go beyond that. Tyrus and Babylon are just earthly powers that are opposed to God. So they're symbols, if you like, of the power of the devil and his forces. And so what is said about them rarely is applicable to him. And thus we find that this great power is described as wandering for backwards and forwards, was in the Garden of Eden amongst these precious gems, in other words, the whole impression is that the devil was one of these great angels, one of these created powers which God brought into being that they might serve him and that he might use them to his own honor and to his own glory. Very well. There is the great original picture. But something has obviously happened. What is it? How do you explain the origin of evil? Where have evil and sin come from? Now, the answer that is given here is that there is what we may describe as a pre-cosmic fall. When I say cosmic, I'm thinking of this universe that you and I dwell in and inhabit, the universe as we know it. 
But according to the Bible, before this cosmos was created, there was a tremendous calamity, a fall, a pre-cosmic fall. What does that mean? Well, it's the thing that is described, you see, in Ezekiel 28 again and Isaiah 14. If you want a reference to it in the New Testament, you'll find it in the first epistle to Timothy, in the third chapter and the sixth verse, where you'll read this. The apostle is telling Timothy not to ordain a novice as an elder or as a bishop. He says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. A most significant statement. Take that with the two passages from the prophets, and this is what you find. Here amidst all these bright angelic beings was this outstanding one, Lucifer, son of the morning, one of the greatest, the ablest, the most powerful of them all. He became ambitious. The term ambition, you remember, was used concerning him. He became dissatisfied with his position of subservience to God. He desired to be as God himself. So he rebelled against God. He raised himself against God with his ambition, lifted up with pride, as Paul puts it there in 1 Timothy. Lifted up with pride. He withstood God. He became a rebel. And the result of this was that he fell. He was punished, of course, for that. And not only that, he lost his perfection. And he lost the freedom that he had formerly enjoyed. But here is the great principle which we must lay hold of. God, again, in his own inscrutable wisdom, allowed this to happen. And it doesn't seem to me to be very difficult to understand, if one may speak with reverence, why God allowed that. I have reminded you that these beings were created perfect. And anything that is perfect must have absolute freedom of will. So obviously these beings had complete freedom of will. Anything that's perfect must be free. Adam, as created perfect, was free. Adam had free will. Nobody else has ever had it since, but Adam had it. And it is this very quality of freedom that shows the possibility of rebellion and of falling and of therefore the origin of evil. Well, thus it came to pass that God, having created this being perfect, he exercised the freedom of his will in a wrong direction through pride and being lifted up, and so he fell, and fell under condemnation and fell under punishment. But the story doesn't end there. In addition to doing this himself, it is made clear that the devil at the same time persuaded certain other of these angelic beings and powers and principalities to follow him and to do the same thing. Now let me give you my scriptural warrant for saying that. You've got it, for instance, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 4, uh, again, remember, it's symbolic and it's imagery, but here it is. He's talking about that great dragon, the devil. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. That is surely a symbolic way of saying 
that the devil, when he fell himself, dragged down with him some third of these great powers whom God had created in that way. Then there's a statement like this in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And then the, st the statement goes on. But what I'm emphasizing is that the angels sinned, some of them, and they were cast down to Tartarus, to hell, and were delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And you'll get the same thing in the sixth verse of the epistle of Jude. Now then, here you see is the picture that is given. Still remember, this is before the creation of the world. The devil influences these others, and together they rebel against God. And so they fall, they become evil, and they are under God's condemnation. But they are sufficiently great in power and in number to form and to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of evil. A kingdom of darkness. And the whole ambition and the object of all the activities of the devil and his cohorts is uh, to be against God. The devil lifted up with pride fell and now, of course, because of his fall, he is uh, animated by a hatred, an intense hatred of God. His only one ambition and that is to destroy God's works, to produce chaos. God is a God of order. The devil is intent upon producing chaos. Now, you see, you begin to see the relevance of all this. The world has been a place of chaos, hasn't it? And we know it is a place of chaos today. Well, here it is, you see. These great powers, they've established a kingdom. And now there is a great warfare. God and his bright angelic hosts and the heaven against the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of darkness, the forces, the spirits of evil that are set against. Now there in its essence is the biblical explanation of the origin of evil. That is how it has ever come into being at all. This tremendous event there in the angelic and in the heavenly realm. Right above us altogether. Now, I'm emphasizing this again for this selfsame reason. The whole tragedy of the world today, as I see it is, that we are so utterly earthbound. You see, we start with men, we start with the world. It's us ourselves, and especially the 20th century. But my dear friend, if you want to understand the 20th century, the first thing you've got to do is not only to go back to the beginning in Eden, you've got to go back into eternity, before the world was ever made. And there you'll see this great alignment of forces, good and evil, light and darkness, God and the devil and their forces. Now all that is made perfectly clear. There is one other thing that I mention. It isn't quite so clear. It's partly speculative. But I mention it because it may have a very great significance and it certainly does help one's understanding of certain problems and certain aspects of the Christian faith. There are those who believe that this great cataclysmic event which took place in that pre-cosmic fall when the devil and the angels fell involved also 
an original material creation. And they say that it helps them to understand the second verse in the Bible. Let me read it to you. I'll read the first two verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's verse 1. Verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the deep there really means the chaos. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. It's a description of a state of chaos. Well, now, this is the idea, the speculation. That before this cosmos that you and I are aware of, there was an original creation. That verse 1 in Genesis is really a reference to the great origin. It's a, a general statement that God has made everything. Then they say that God had made a world, a cosmos, in which these angelic principalities and powers, they lived and they functioned and they dwelt. But when they fell in their rebellion and pride and disobedience, God punished their universe also. And it was reduced to a, to a state of chaos. So that what is described in Genesis is the restoration, the recreation of this original creation which had got into a state of chaos and of darkness. Now, I say that this is something about which we can't be certain. And that this is more or less a speculation, but I think there's a great deal to be said for it. I cannot imagine God's act of creation passing through a chaotic state at any point at all. I can't believe that. I can't believe that God's creation, as made by God, was in any stage a kind of abyss, a void, a chaos. Oh no, that doesn't fit in with God's work. Look at it in creation, look at it in nature, look at it everywhere. Every step and stage is characterized by that same perfection of form. Inchoate, perhaps, underdeveloped, not yet perfect. Ah, but it's all right at its particular stage. It's never chaotic. The most rudimentary form, the most embryonic form, is never chaotic. There's never this sense of void. But we are told that the spirit brooded upon this chaos, this deep. So it may very well be true. And if it is true, you see... It provides a very complete answer to the people who say that they don't believe the book of Genesis because of the findings of the geologists who are looking at uh, uh, nature and at the material universe say, ah, but look here, there's evidence here that these rocks or these formations have existed for millennia. Very well, they may be right, they may be wrong. We mustn't believe everything even a geologist says. But even granting that they're right, the answer may be that all that they're discovering is just the result of that great original catastrophe when with the fall of the angels and of the devil there was also this punishment of the whole universe in this destruction, this chaos that resulted. I don't emphasize that. I just put it to you for your consideration. However, the thing that we must be clear about is this. That there before the cosmos as we know it now was this tremendous event. 
and you've got your powers and forces of evil. The next step is this one. God creating the world as you and I now know it. I mean by that God creating this present cosmos. What is described there in the first chapter of Genesis. And God made it perfect. As all God's works are perfect. God made it perfect. Everything was perfect. Man included. So here is a perfect creation. Paradise. God looked upon it all and saw that it was good and God was pleased and was satisfied with it. There is God's perfect world and all was harmony and peace and men living in fellowship with God. But then the question arises, well then if that was so, how is the world as we see it now? And you're familiar with the answer, aren't you? Oh yes, God has made this and he delights in it. He sees it's good. But the forces of evil, the devil and the fallen angels and the principalities and powers with their evil desire and their unhealthy ambition and their hatred of God, they look upon it and they're determined to destroy it. So the devil came and tempted the woman. And through the woman, the man. In other words, the fall of men. Everything that we have described in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. That's precisely what it's saying. Evil didn't start there, it was already there. The devil, Satan, came in, taking this guise of a serpent. But it was he who did it. And we see his object, it's against God. And man, of course, is the object now of attack, because he's God's perfect creation. And God has made man in his own image, and he's made man lord of creation. He is the governor of the world. But the devil came in and he tempted him and men responded and he fell. What's the result? Well, now the results of the fall, of course, are endless. I'm simply concerned to emphasize one particular aspect on this occasion. It's this. That men, by listening to the devil, became the slave of the devil. He became a citizen of the devil's kingdom. He got under the power of the devil. And so you will find the devil described in the Bible as the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This is the result of man's fall. He has put himself under the power of the devil and his evil agencies. He belongs to the devil. Now the Bible is full of these descriptions. You remember Saul of Tarsus meeting our Lord on the road to Damascus and being commissioned to go and do his work? What was he told to do? He said, I'm sending you to be a minister and a witness unto the people. What for? Well, he says, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. The implication is that as they are, they're under the power of Satan. And so it's not surprising that when Paul comes to write to the Colossians, he says this, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Man is in the kingdom of darkness. He's in the kingdom of the devil. He's under the power of the devil. 
under the dominion of sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you, says Paul to Christians. It had dominion over you before you became Christians. Or listen to our Lord's description again, which I quoted last Sunday. He said, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Now that is the Lord Jesus Christ's description of the world apart from himself. The strong man armed, here's the devil. What's the world? His palace. The goods, he keepeth his goods in peace. Who's that? Mankind as the result of sin. So the terrible consequence of the fall was, you see, that men... He's not, a, he's not himself any longer. He's a slave of the devil. He's the goods of the strong man armed. He's under the power and the dominion of Satan and sin and evil. Take the Apostle John's description of it again. In the first epistle, chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Ye are of God, little children, and the whole world lieth in that wicked one. What a terrible description. The whole world, apart from Christian people, is in the embrace of the wicked one, is in the arms of Satan. He's got them, and he's holding them, and he's dominating over the whole of their life. That's what the Bible tells us about the origin of evil and of sin. That's why man is as he is, you see. That pre-cosmic fall led to the cosmic fall, the fall of man. And what's the result? The whole course of man's history, the whole of his story has been entirely changed. Man, from the moment he fell through listening to Satan, is no longer free. He's the slave of Satan. He's the underling of the God of this world. He is no longer the Lord of creation. He is mastered by these things and in many senses their servant. Yet though he still has great ability. He's the victim of his own forces. Ah, oh, but you say, look, he split the atom. I know, but he's the slave of the atomic power, isn't he? You see, the whole position has been reversed. Man has lost his freedom. He is no longer the Lord of creation. He is the slave of the devil and of hell. So that you have to realize that the real problem of the world this morning is only really and truly understood in the light of this great spiritual conflict between God and the devil. So the problem confronting us is not what can be done to man. And that's why acts of parliament are not going to solve our problem, nor international conferences. At the back of men, there's something else. There are these unseen powers. It's the devil. Man's merely the instrument that's being used. He's the pawn upon the table, as it were. But it's at the back of men, you see these other forces. The forces that are determined to produce a state of chaos, to upset God's universe. And there, then, I say, is the starting point of all our considerations. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We can deal with men because they're of like powers with ourselves. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And the devil, my friends, is infinitely more powerful than we are. Read your Old Testament. He's defeated every saint, every patriarch, every prophet, 
There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No man has ever been able to stand up against the devil. He's too powerful. He is this bright spirit, son of the morning, Lucifer. Great in his power, great in his understanding, great in his authority, great in the forces which he can marshal. That's the position. And man, he's helpless in his hands. Strong man on, keepeth his goods in peace. Very well, we've got to leave it at that for this morning. But there, in a sense, you see, is the introduction to this matter. Now we have seen what's at the back of it all and how it's all come into being. But we shall have to go on, of course, to consider what these powers and forces are doing in detail so that we may see how this wisdom of theirs and this power and understanding and brilliance and authority and ability, how all that is actually used in practice against nations, against individuals, the great problem of evil and man fighting these powers as he passes through this world. Now then, there, I say, is the introduction to it all. You must have faced the problem of the origin of evil. You don't think if you haven't faced that. We are meant to think, my friends, and the Bible encourages us to, and it helps us to, and it has its explanation. There is the origin of it all. Don't start with men. Don't start even with the world. Go back, go back beyond it. In the heavenly places, the original calamity took place. And the world is but the chosen seed of this mighty battle between God and the devil. Is this discouraging? Well, as I said last Sunday morning in closing, I say again, far from discouraging, I find it to be most encouraging, because now I understand what's happening. But still more I know this, that the Lord reigneth, he's over all, and he has sent somebody into this world who has been able to master the strong man armed and to rob him of his armor. The Christian not only is aware of the forces arranged against him, he is one who is able to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He can put on the whole armor of God. And though he is fighting Lucifer, Star of the morning, the devil, principalities and powers, he can stand and continue to stand and be finally more than conqueror. May God give us grace and wisdom to consider these things, to meditate upon them, that we may take unto ourselves the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all things, to stand. Amen.